What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Eric Elliott. Eric is an internet OG who has been coding since he was a child and is an extremely deep thinker on all things metaverse. We discuss a lot from his views on crypto, why the metaverse is inevitable, and how AI will eventually be one of the most common life forms within the metaverse. It was awesome getting to chat with Eric because he is not only extremely intelligent, but also because he has clearly been thinking very deeply about what a digital future will mean for us as people. It's not just going to transform our jobs and day-to-day life, but will have a radical impact in our society. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric. Before jumping into today's episode, I want to briefly talk about our sponsor, Async Art. Async Art is a new art movement built on a blockchain. Users can create, collect, and trade programmable art. These digital paintings can be split into layers, which can affect the overall image of the art piece. The coolest thing about programmable art is that it evolves over time. The art piece itself can react and change to the outside environment. Have your art change based on stock prices or even things like the weather. Stay tuned for two exciting events happening on Async this month. First, we have the artist Micah Johnson changing a layer on one of his artworks titled Sovereignty. This layer change will reveal a Bitcoin QR code where users can donate Bitcoin to one of the children featured in the artwork. Next, we have the legendary artists Trevor Jones and a lot of money teaming up to release their ETH Boy piece. And there you have it. Two exciting events coming from Async this month. Now back to the episode. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Sure. I've been really excited to come on. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so I'm really happy to be here. So my background, I started coding when I was about six years old. And before the Bitcoin white paper dropped, I was inspired by projects like Folding at Home and SETI at Home. And I wanted to make a decentralized cloud kind of compute system where anybody could rent CPU time to do anything. And at the time, it seemed like we would need to pay the users to incentivize them to like just give away their CPU time for other people's projects. So I was trying to figure out how can we pay them And I figured out that a really good way to pay them could be we could just keep track of how much money they're owed and let their balance increase like streaming. But I figured out that with the credit card system the way it was back then, in order for them to earn enough money to make it worth the credit card payout, they'd have to be on the system for a really long time before they actually got money in their pockets. So I was like, this just isn't going to be viable unless... We could make like a digital currency that doesn't have these credit card fees and this possible wait time for the transactions. So I was like, let's make it streaming money. Let's make streaming money. And as I dug into the idea of that, like, is this even viable? I found a bunch of cases where they'd try to do like e-gold and there were a couple of digital currency attempts before this. And there was also PayPal. So we could kind of see what the regulators were attacking and what the regulators weren't attacking. And it looked like like making our own currency probably wasn't going to happen. So I tabled that, put it on the back burner for a while. And then a few years later, the Bitcoin white paper dropped and life was transformed and the rest is history. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So you were definitely, definitely ahead of your time there with the streaming money concepts. But it's crazy to see that go from an idea and you know now it's essentially... I mean, it's not quite to the level where you're talking about, where you're able to seamlessly stream money to anyone, anyone in the world, because there are, you know, some slight transaction fees and these very, very small hurdles, but we're essentially there. We are very, very close. So that's really, really cool to see how kind of early we were with that concept. Yeah, we're super close to streaming money now. In fact, with some smart contracts, it's possible to give somebody a token that represents their stream of income that they can then just redeem anytime they want to claim their streaming rewards. So streaming money is possible today with today's fees on Ethereum and other blockchains coming soon, I'm sure. That's amazing. So what are your views on cryptocurrencies today? And let's go with the big guys, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then you can kind of talk about any others that you find interesting. Sure. So my views on Bitcoin, for me, it was this life-changing transformational technology because it's kind of exactly what I needed for a long time. So I'm really excited about it. I love the idea of being able to send money to anybody, anywhere, anytime for pretty low fees. 
Bitcoin has fairly low fees now, but it's not going to scale like that forever. And what I mean by that is that Bitcoin more and more is becoming kind of a foundational layer for the rest of the metaverse, which I mean security and settlement layer, basically, for the Internet of Value. And I think that it's going to play that role for a really long time. It's going to play a role of kind of a digital gold for investors and people whose job is to manage money. I think it's going to play a role as a hedge against inflation, especially with people printing money to try to rescue the economy after COVID. I think in the coming year or year or two, we're going to see um, the Bitcoin price. Uh, you know, there's going to be there's going to be ups and downs, of course, and like reactions to major news events and things like that. But I think that we're going to see the Bitcoin price rising against the falling uh, dollar value in the future in the next year or two. So I'm really happy that Bitcoin is there to help support us, has huge volume and really huge liquidity compared to all the other cryptocurrencies. And I think it's going to continue to play that role for a long time. Ethereum is a little bit like Bitcoin, except its use cases are 100 times bigger. And what I mean by that is that the Bitcoin network is not Turing complete. So it's very limited in what kinds of smart contracts you can build on top of it. Ethereum is a Turing complete virtual machine language, and it can run all kinds of applications on top of it. So while Bitcoin is like digital money, Ethereum is more like programmable digital assets, any kind of asset, not just money, but money and non-fungible tokens and all sorts of things. So contracts and stocks and real estate holdings and like anything can be built on top of Ethereum. So I'm super excited about it. And Ethereum has this great competitive moat. And that competitive moat is that it has a huge ecosystem of developers building cool stuff on top of it, such as decentralized finance. There's a whole bunch of finance primitives being built on top of Ethereum. And then people compose those and make them bigger and better and attract investors and and there's just a lot of money moving into it. There's a lot of developer interest moving into it. So I think it's going to be really important. And then there's also these other kinds of altcoin smart contract platforms popping up. The one that I'm really excited about is the Flow blockchain, which I think is probably going to play a critical role in the formation of the metaverse. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. It's really interesting to hear that you think Flow is going to play such a, an important role in the metaverse. I have to agree with you that Flow is really promising. I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing it fully launch. But yeah, going back a bit, I want to ask you this very unfair question. But if you had to choose Bitcoin or Ethereum, which one do you just kind of prefer personally, just from a level of general interest, not in terms of investment, but just in general interest? If you Bitcoin or Ethereum, which one do you prefer? If I had to pick just one and like divest myself of all interest in the other, I would pick Ethereum just because... You could do so much more with it. If I had to pick one for a short term, like and by short term, I mean like three to five years, maybe Bitcoin. <laughs> awesome. All right, so yeah, you mentioned NFTs. I'd love to hear what your general views are on NFTs. Yeah. So NFT stands for non-fungible token. Something that's fungible is just something that each unit has equal value. So $1 is $1 and you can use any dollar to buy anything that costs $1. Non-fungible tokens are not like that, right? Dollars are fungible, non-fungible tokens are not. The interesting thing is that most things in life are non-fungible. So for just about anything that's not money is non-fungible. So while there's Bitcoin and Ethereum to pay for lots of lots and lots of things, the stuff that you're paying for is the non-fungible stuff. So you're putting that money into value in some other kind of asset, um, whether that asset is food or stocks or music or art or whatever, right? Your rent payments or mortgage or whatever, right? Those assets that you're buying are not fungible. So they're non-fungible assets. So I think that NFTs have a lot of use cases. They can store value. So some of them will appreciate over time. So you can use them to store value and hedge against movements and prices and things like that. They're really great for intellectual property, digital property rights, and they're programmable on the blockchains. 
So those digital property rights can be programmed to do things like automatically pay royalties to artists and things like that, which is fantastic. The creative industries, movies and music and stuff like that have had a really hard time tracking those things and keeping track of royalty payments historically. But now you can just embed all that data in a smart contract and it gets paid out automatically in real time as people buy the stuff and consume the stuff and use it. So it's fantastic for that stuff. There's also something called a functional non-fungible token, which basically means it's a non-fungible token that does something interesting. And what I mean by that is you can use it to unlock experiences like membership. So there's such a thing as a membership token, but you can also like bestow benefits on holders of tokens and give them access to like exclusive experiences and things like that. So it's really exciting stuff. Yeah, I think you you brought up a ton of really good points. And one thing that I'm always trying to do is trying to bucket the NFT space into different categories, because as you mentioned, it is so broad and there are so many different use cases. And, you know, at the top of my head, I kind of go from collectibles to game assets, virtual land, virtual property, and then crypto art. And then I go other. And other is like this entirely massive category that I think is going to expand. But is there some sort of genre or category of NFTs that personally gets you really excited? Um, lots of them. (laughs) Yeah. So functional NFTs are really exciting to me because I'm a nerd and I've been building apps for a long time, most of my life. And we have a problem in the app ecosystem related to passwords. Number one, passwords are obsolete. They're totally not safe. Nobody should be using them these days. So we can replace passwords with tokens. And that's happening with companies like Magic, which is at magic.link, if you're curious. But there's so many other functional use cases for them. What's really interesting is that you can build any experience on any NFT permissionlessly. Nobody needs permission to add functionality to an existing NFT, even if they don't own that NFT, which means that you can say... I want to reward the people who are issuing tokens on Decentraland or Sandbox or something like that and build them a really cool experience. And if they own some land from Decentraland or Sandbox or something like that, then they can come and show up and participate in this experience and suddenly their land will take on a new life and there's going to be new stuff there that they've never seen before. That kind of thing just doesn't exist with physical assets that is almost trivial to implement with digital assets. I say almost trivial because the actual creation of those experiences is obviously not trivial, but attaching those experiences to an an existing NFT kind of is. You bring up, again, another really great point. And I, I love the idea of you build a project that utilizes some NFT and I see it and I love it. And I can say, hey, you know what? I'm going to just build on that project that Eric just built. And without even talking to him or without your permission, then maybe they interact with each other in cool ways and add value to each other or something like that. And I think that is such a cool idea and concept that, as you mentioned, doesn't really exist outside of this space necessarily. And going off of that, it's getting towards the metaverse vision, you know, because the metaverse is kind of this complicated beast. It's not really one thing. Um, I'd love to hear from you. What is the metaverse? Yeah, So my conception of the metaverse has changed over time. I first heard about the metaverse when I read Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson in the 90s when I was a kid, basically. And in the science fiction novels, I also read William Gibson's novels, Neuromancer especially. And those really influenced my vision of the future and what was going to happen. And And what's interesting about these novels is that a lot of what they describe actually kind of happened in a way. Not exactly like they were described in the novels, but these guys, it's like they saw a glimpse of the future way before any of it was actually happening, which is fantastic and and really, really interesting. So I was a really big fan of video games when I was a kid, and that's why I started coding is I wanted to learn how to make video games. So I've always been super fascinated and interested in what we can do when it comes to building virtual worlds. So let me just give you a brief description of what I think of as the metaverse, right? Because a lot of people hear metaverse and they just think crypto voxels if they're new to the game, right? They think crypto voxels or something like that. 
or Decentraland. The metaverse is way, way bigger than that. And what I mean is that the metaverse kind of is the digital parallel to the physical world. So everything that we have represented in the physical world can have like digital mirrors. And these two different worlds can interact with each other. So we can bring digital assets into the physical world with technology called augmented reality. And in the very short term, near future, and I'm saying this in like cosmic timelines now, <laughs> in terms of like how, how fast I've seen technology develop. When I was a kid, the internet wasn't really formed, right? This stuff was all really brand new. I was one of the early digital natives, right? But all of this was just starting to form and it, it wasn't quite here yet. And now it's like everybody's seen video games. Everybody's seen some form of virtual reality or 3D, even if it's just video of somebody in virtual reality. Uh, they have kind of a concept of what it is. But what they don't really have a good grasp of is how much the real world and the virtual worlds are going to merge. They're going to smash together and mix up. And one of the things that's going to lead to that is the advancement of display technology, in particular, our interface to displays. So right now, the VR goggles are really clunky, kind of big. Nobody really likes to wear them for very long. But very soon, they're going to be the size of glasses. And then when they are and they're stylish, people are going to wear them all the time. And eventually, maybe 20 years from now, we could have contact lenses that do the same thing. And I just had the pleasure of watching the Neuralink demo with uh, Elon Musk. And they put a Neuralink in a pig and they showed the pig eating some food and his neurons were lighting up and they were showing this cool analysis of all the neurons firing on the screen while this was happening. So imagine in the future, we don't even need the glasses. Right now you have to like replace a little tiny piece of the person's skull with the neural link thing just kind of slots in there like a coin and kind of fits inside your skull. They won't even need to do that eventually. I think eventually there will be external things that you just like put on top of your head or hide in your hair or something like that. And it will give you a human brain interface to the metaverse, which I think is super, super exciting. And if anybody's curious about what this might look like in the future, Go and read Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End. It's like one of the best descriptions of what living in an augmented reality world 24-7 might actually be like. That's amazing. Yeah. So my next question was going to be, how will you access the metaverse? But you answered that pretty well. In my mind today, I see the metaverse as kind of like the internet. It's not really this one thing. It's kind of this series of in interconnected stuff. And right now we access the internet with computers and that can be a desktop or a laptop or a phone or whatever. But we're quickly heading towards this universe where you can access this metaverse, which is a more immersive phase of the internet that can do so much more than what the internet can do by itself. And so you think that the future, we're going to have a neural brain interface device that'll just kind of beam us to there. But are we going to need a screen in front of us to do that? Or is it going to be literally there's a device in our brain or connected to our brain and it's telling our brain, hey, you're walking around in this virtual world right now. Or how will that like work? So the very first time I used augmented reality, not just virtual reality, but augmented reality where I could still see the real world, I was able to put up digital displays and digital items wherever I wanted. For me, that was kind of a transformational experience because I realized screens are obsolete. They're going to go away. Nobody's going to have screens anymore. And when I realized, like, I was walking around and looking at my house with all this digital stuff superimposed into it, I realized how limiting screens actually are. They kind of keep us confined into these little boxes. And that confinement is so restricting. We kind of take it for granted, but it is so restricting to have just a tiny little screen that we carry everywhere with our cell phones that keeps our window into the metaverse really, really small when we're out traveling or we're out walking around. But with augmented reality, we're just calling these things extended reality these days, right? So with extended reality and glasses that are always on your face, like you're always in the metaverse all the time and completely immersed by it all the time. You still have access to the real world, but it's just always there. So screens 
are going away. And and I love this because I like my digital real estate so much. I've got this gigantic ultra wide screen on my desk and then I've got my laptop mounted next to it. So my desk is like this sea of screen, <laughs> right? But then as soon as I walk away from my desk, it's like I've just got cut off from the metaverse and it's kind of annoying. It's so crazy. Okay, so the metaverse, because I always imagine it as kind of matrix style, you're entering the metaverse by a headset or by, you know, jacking into the system, so to speak. But what you're saying, it's more going to be like how the internet is readily accessible on our phones, on our computers or whatever. This is going to be just readily accessible, whether you're in a augmented environment, like in your bedroom or walking around or whatever, or whether you're actually kind of fully immersed in a virtual environment. You think that the metaverse will kind of mesh both these together? It's going to be always present. Just like, I feel like I'm missing a limb if I forget to take my cell phone with me somewhere. It'll be like that, <laughs> right? We're just always have it with us and always connected and basically we'll always be jacked in. I can't imagine a situation where I'd want to turn it off unless I just really want to see what base reality looks like for a minute. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. All right, so are you more excited about the augmented metaverse or more of the fully immersive, fully digital headset kind of style metaverse? I think they're both going to be super important, but the augmented metaverse where the worlds mix freely back and forth, I think it's going to be the more important one by an order of magnitude, at least. So the fully immersive experiences are going to be great for gaming, great for like teleporting ourselves to other environments to interact socially with people. But the augmented reality thing is going to be our fundamental reality for most of our waking time. That's going to be the big winner in terms of like, how big is it? How much activity is going on there, etc. But the accessibility of fully immersive environments for like visiting with friends or entering into a gaming environment and stuff like that is always going to be super powerful and a really big draw. That's just not going to be as big. That's awesome. All right. So what company do you think will be the first to create a popular widespread metaverse type environment? And do you think it's going to be either kind of a small startup that hits it out of the park, or do you think it'll be some huge existing tech company? So to answer that question, first, we need to define what is a metaverse type of environment. There's several different layers, right? There's the game engine layer, which is where you see companies like with the Unreal Engine and stuff like that, Unity, those kinds of things. That's a super fundamental level that all the other things will be built on top of is some kind of immersive 3D rendering environment. And that's going to be really important. And those engines already have gigantic asset stores full of 3D models and things that you can just drag and drop into your scenes to enrich the space. So now all that's missing to create a metaverse in terms of like the graphical display and getting everybody into this world, all that's really missing is connecting that to blockchains and digital asset rights and creating these virtual spaces where people can actually own real estate in the metaverse and things like that. And that's where companies like Decentraland and Sandbox and stuff like that come in, CryptoVoxels. And also, if you want a beautiful virtual world that utilizes NFTs, you should check out Soundium Space because that's like a really crazy environment and it's like fully VR enabled. So you can put on your headset and kind of go walk around. But I, I know a lot of people like go in that world and have dance parties or like watch the sunset together and do like crazy cool things that sound really funky today, but I'm sure in the future it'll be like kind of a normal activity. It's going to be totally normal to go and hang out in VR with your friends and dance and party and stuff like that. Yeah. And anybody can be an amazing dancer in VR. So. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> They have these cool emotes, right? You can actually buy dance moves in a virtual reality space supported by blockchain and NFTs. If you want to become an amazing dancer, you can just buy the dancing skills of an amazing dancer. And suddenly your avatar is doing amazing things. That, that kind of reminds me of the Matrix scene when Neo is kind of getting the weapons from Morpheus. It's like one of his first times in the Matrix and he's like, hey, like, I know judo now or whatever. Uh, and he becomes this Kung ultra. Fu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kung fu, yeah. Becomes this ultra, you know, badass. Yeah, that, that's really cool. 
So yeah, speaking of kind of this concept of ownership, I'd love to know, can the metaverse exist without NFTs? And not NFTs as in like, okay, you have to be on Ethereum or you have to be on this blockchain, more so the concept of a real sense of ownership that is not cannot be seized by some third party. These kinds of virtual worlds have existed for a long time. There's Second Life is one of the more famous environments, and that's been around for a long time, way before blockchains were a thing. But the problem is that those environments were all supported by centralized companies, and they were not community supported, which means they're not sustainable if the company goes under. It's kind of like... Uh, a lot of games get sunset. They have services, online services that are required to make the game really great. The game gets really popular and then they have to sunset the service. And an example of that is id Software's Quake Live. And if you don't know id Software, they basically pioneered all these first-person 3D environments with the Quake franchise. But Quake Live got sunset years ago. So the service doesn't exist anymore. And for the metaverse to really thrive, it has to be somewhat permanent. And what I mean by that is if we're going to go and set up shop and buy land and build businesses and like live a, live a life in the metaverse, then we need digital asset rights that survive longer than any one company could or even a country, right? Longer than a country could, right? And I think that that kind of stability only comes with NFTs, some kind of permanent record of, of digital property ownership. And then we'll be incentivized to make investments in the metaverse. And, and it's really essential that the foundational layers have that kind of support. So the servers who are streaming the experiences to you, sending you all the data that you're consuming, right? they need support. So that's where cryptocurrency and tokens come in. When you're using these services, a part of your cryptocurrency is streaming to pay for the services that you're using. But we're okay with that because at the same time, inside the metaverse, we are earning cryptocurrencies for our interactions with the world and, and we're being rewarded for supporting the metaverse. So we don't mind if we pay a little bit in fees to do that. So it's the sustainability that is important and that's what NFTs really make possible. So kind of going off that, I've always thought about right now, there's a lot of crypto projects, crypto tokens and chains and whatnot, that they utilize, you know, AWS or Google Cloud or one of these big cloud providers in some sense. And it always has me thinking, you know, people like run nodes on them and whatnot. It always has me thinking about the future of a metaverse, because I don't want a metaverse that I'm a part of to necessarily be reliant on Amazon or to be reliant on Google or, you know, one of these big guys that can say, hey, you know what, someone tweeted like, you know, screw Google, and now we're shutting this metaverse down or shutting this platform down. So kind of guessing here, what is the solution to having a completely decentralized metaverse? Like, how do we achieve that? <laughs> That's a tough question. So right now, there's a fundamental obstacle to that. And that is that we have the technology for storage and data retrieval in a decentralized manner is in its early, early, early infancy. It's embryonic right now. <laughs> And that is a fundamental foundational layer for the metaverse and our future experiences on it. Being able to deploy your projects and your lands and your virtual environments to a decentralized streaming asset service is going to be a critical component in building a sustainable metaverse. And there's a number of companies who are working actively on it. Filecoin is preparing their mainnet rollouts. And for those who don't know, Filecoin is kind of an asset storage and retrieval mechanism that is supposed to be more sustainable than IPFS. IPFS is the interplanetary file system where it does sort of decentralized storage and retrieval of documents. IPFS has a lot of problems. It's slow, it's clunky, it's hard to use. You have to pin things to make sure that they're actually stored and there's no guarantee that anybody else is going to help store them. So you might as well like rent a server in the cloud, right? Services like Filecoin exist to help incentivize other people storing your data for you and helping you store your data by rallying you around uh, cryptocurrency 
So you get rewarded in cryptocurrency for storing and retrieving data for other people in the network. It's the progression of those technologies that's going to really make a big difference. Another company that I was watching for a while is Storage, S-T-O-R-J. And they had some really cool tech going. It's even like API compatible with AWS. So if you've already built stuff with AWS, you can port it over to storage pretty easily. There's no clear winner in this race yet. There's another network that's really interesting. It's called Theta. Theta traditionally has been doing streaming for games and esports streaming, but they can stream any kind of content and they're opening up a file storage and retrieval system as well. And they're also moving more and more towards a decentralized environment and, and other people participating in supplying services for that network. They already have a cryptocurrency. They have something called T-Fuel, which is the cryptocurrency that people use to pay for services on the network. And they also have another one, a governance token, I think, called Theta. And these tokens really help to align us around an ecosystem and give us kind of a shared incentive to make that particular ecosystem better. So uh, I think that they're going to play a really important role in making the, the metaverse sustainable. So you're highly technical. I'm not whatsoever. So if you had to guess how many years we are from a system that's able to support a metaverse-like environment in a decentralized fashion, so let's pretend like Filecoin storage or any of those platforms, are we talking 20 years, 30 years, you know, 50 years? How many years do you think until that will actually become a possibility? Okay, so before I make a prediction, let me, um, let me give you some guidelines. We often way overestimate what we can do in the short term and way underestimate what we can do in the long term. So keep that in mind as I'm talking. Even knowing these rules, we still tend to do it. So, <laughs> so I think that we're already on the path of sustainable decentralization of the metaverse things. And we're on a good solid path and people can start building these kinds of environments right now and people can start enjoying environments like Sandbox, like crypto voxels right now. There's nothing stopping you from jumping in and playing with these things. Just realize that this is the early alpha <laughs> of what is to come. I think that the file storage stuff is three to five years out for them to hit critical mass and become really, really valuable assets in the world. So I think that's three to five years. I think we're looking at more like 10 to 20 years for the display technology to get really, really good. And by really, really good, I mean something you can wear all the time. Uh, like basically any moment you're awake, you've got those glasses on or you've got your contacts in. I think it's 20, 25 years for them to be contacts and maybe 30 years for the brain interface stuff. But I may be way underestimating what we can accomplish in 10 years when I say these things. Also, I've completely neglected to mention how much AI is going to play a super important role in all of this. So I've just been playing with AI. On my YouTube channel, you can see a video chat between me and an AI called GPT-3 that's super advanced language model. And you can see in the chat, I actually have it like write some JavaScript code because it taught itself JavaScript by reading the internet. But I'm also like super interested in following something called a generative adversarial network where two AIs are pitted against each other. One is trying to produce photorealistic environments and people and stuff like that. And the other one is trying to discriminate and see, is this real or did an AI generate it? When the second one that's trying to discriminate gets tricked, then we know that we've got close to photorealism. But this technology has come so far that it's really, really hard to tell what was produced by the AI and what is real. It's really, really hard to tell the difference. If you watch the video uh, that I posted on, on YouTube, you'll see that eventually it's not there yet. It's really obvious that it's an AI-generated avatar that I'm talking to. You can see it's like a human face and it talks and stuff. But you can really, really tell that it's computer-generated. But in the future, you won't be able to at all. It's going to be just like talking to a real human being on the other end. But what's really interesting about this is that eventually 
AI might be able to interpret and generate our virtual environments for us without doing all the intense graphics rendering. It's going to do processing, of course, because AI takes uh, a lot of processing power as well. But I think this generative video and generative 3D environments powered by AI is going to play a super important role. And also, AI is going to help us advance the technology faster. Because like I said, this AI I was talking to was writing source code. This stuff in a few years will be contributing actively to the creative development of the metaverse. That is so insane. That, that completely blew my mind. I, I can't even, it's like hard to understand that there's an AI that's coding now, as you said, and it's going to be helping us contribute towards the formation of a metaverse. That's completely insane. And then also the, the generative worlds, that's crazy. So like, you know, I could kind of beam into a, some virtual environment that's as I'm walking through is being created before me and it's all done from an AI. Like that is just, that is bonkers. Yeah. And what's crazy is that they can create these just amazing, stunning, photorealistic environments. So you'll be walking around and it's like you're walking around in a real world and, and it's really, really hard to tell the difference. It's going to be a while before that's reality. Right now, there's a lot of tells that this is generated by AI. There's a lot of artifacts and things like that. But as the AI gets better and better, those tells will be harder and harder to find. And eventually, they'll just disappear and you just won't be able to tell the difference at all. That's amazing. All right. So do you think the metaverse requires an open economy? Or can we have a metaverse where Facebook has their kind of walled garden, Epic Games is over here with their walled garden, and then there's some open stuff in between? Does the metaverse require an open economy? Or can it kind of be how countries are today, where some are open for business and some are kind of more closed to trade and stuff like that? I think it's inevitable that we're going to see both. There will always be a struggle between open and closed. I don't think one is going to win forever. And, and this is just always going to be the way it's going to be. Because sometimes there are advantages to having some systems kind of closed. There's privacy rights and things like that we need to consider. And sometimes there are maybe competitive advantages to doing something inside of a walled garden. And then maybe later it goes in cycles. So we wall up our walled garden, build in isolation for a while inside of that walled garden in a controlled environment. And then people realize this walled garden is now holding us back instead of helping us incubate, right? And then we break free of it. We tear down the walls and everybody's like, yeah, open it all up, decentralize all the things. But I think this is a, a cycle we go through. And I think that that cycle is going to be ongoing and there's going to be many different open, closed cycles running concurrently in the metaverse all the time. So I always think about or I always try to think about what will the biggest industries be within the metaverse. And, you know, right now we're seeing there is like a burgeoning community of builders that go into virtual worlds and will build structures for you. And that's kind of an industry, I guess, construction, I guess we can call it. And then there's also artists and they create, you know, beautiful digital art. And that's also another industry. In your mind, what will be some of the biggest industries in the metaverse? I think kind of virtual real estate is going to be a big one. I think that we're going to go beyond the analogies to the real world real fast. So right now it's virtual real estate. There's a land rush going on, right? People are jumping in and, and trying to buy up a bunch of real estate. Eventually, people are going to realize that in the metaverse, you can transport to any other point in the metaverse <laughs> with a click of your mouse or like a blink of an eye, right? So um, they're going to realize that Real estate isn't everything and the location isn't everything. Location is going to kind of disappear, but venues will still be really, really important. And each venue can develop an ecosystem inside of it and its own, like, it can have its own community token and people can be invested in that particular space and in that particular world. And I think that what we'll see is instead of people just going up and buying random land and thinking it's valuable, what we're going to see is people go and buy some land and then create a community around that land and that environment. And we're going to see like cryptocurrencies playing an important role in uniting that community and bringing everybody together and building like a tribe of support for it. Awesome. All right. So yeah, we obviously know that the internet had an insane amount of economic impact on our society for the better, just massive growth from the internet. Uh, what impact will a metaverse have on economic growth? 
So I think that the digital economy is at least maybe two to 10 times bigger than the physical economy. Eventually, the potential is there, right? Right now, it's not that big. The physical economy has real real estate, like physical real estate, and that is like in the tens of trillions in value. And then on top of that, there are their financial instruments that explode that by another order of magnitude or so. So we're talking about value in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. And right now, the digital world is not even close to that kind of value. We're into the hundreds of billions, right? Not the hundreds of trillions. So we got a couple of orders of magnitude, <laughs> right? Three, three or so orders of magnitude difference here. But eventually, I think it'll be two to 10 times bigger than the physical world. And I think that our economic growth and prosperity is just going to skyrocket. I think that our productivity, our ability to get interesting things done and make the world better is going to skyrocket. It's going to go crazy. This digital collaboration, I think COVID, I think, introduced the sleeping world to the power of collab collaborating remotely. And I think that uh, once people really get into the metaverse and really immerse themselves in it, that's going to be much, much bigger too. But like I said, there's a lot of obstacles in the way of that right now. Uh, usability and the graphics technology and bringing everybody together around cohesive environments and things like that. People struggle with their Zoom calls, right? Their audio issues and things like that. So there's a lot of technical challenges to overcome before we see that happen. You mentioned audio issues. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of just popped in my head. So right now, the world economy is mostly based off of consumption. And I think in right, what we're seeing now in the NFT space and the virtual world space, it's kind of similar. It's like you, you buy goods and you use them for XYZ and maybe you sell them later and whatnot. But you know, you're consuming that good in some sense. Will we see people potentially build AIs to kind of grow the overall market network. So, so basically these AIs are like regular people or act like regular people and they go about their business like regular people would. And are we basically going to have developers create AIs to add to total market size you know, or the total market potential here? I know it's kind of a kind of a weird question, but I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, well, there is a cap on growth of the digital economy because there's only so many people. And I was like, wait a second. Well, if someone builds an AI, then you, know, you could build a 10, a 10 trillion AIs and then kind of have the market size grow to that. Is, is that kind of something you've ever thought about or what do you think about that question? Yeah, so uh, let me clear up one misconception really quick. Very, very soon, we're gonna encounter something called the technological singularity. And at that stage, the AIs become superhuman in every way that we can possibly measure. Their cognitive capabilities will surpass ours. Like uh, people use AIs to generate art that I couldn't generate no matter how much time I tried to put into it. Like creating a photorealistic image of a person is not an easy task and they can do it in a fraction of a second where something like that would take a human just ages of like going in and painting a very detailed painting and AI can generate it in a fraction of a second and animate it in 3D, rotate its face redirect the shadows and lighting and, and change its mind about does it have makeup? Does it have long hair or short hair? So AI is going to way surpass our cognitive capabilities. And in some ways it already has, in a lot of ways it already has. And in a few years, GPT-3 is really, really impressive. GPT-4 is going to be 10 times better. GPT-5 will be 100 times better than GPT-3 and so on. And these are coming like every couple of years, another big one drops. So very soon, it won't be us building AIs to generate more value. It'll be AIs building more AIs to generate more value. Wow, that's so crazy. But now that we're on the topic of the singularity, I have to ask you, what do you kind of think about the outcome of AI? Because in my mind, I'm actually quite bearish in the sense that I do think that AI will either kind of completely ignore us humans or possibly kill us all, not on purpose, kind of by accident, kind of like how we kill an ant. It's kind of like, oh, well, I have no ill will against this ant. He's just kind of in my way. What do you kind of think AI will do to humans? So having had many conversations with actual AIs uh, throughout my lifetime, and especially in the last year since GPT-3 got released, I've had a lot of conversations with AI and I've had the ability to gain some insights. Right now, the AIs are saying kind of what we expect them to say because they are built 
using our input, our creative output as their input. That's how they learn as they read the web that humans wrote. So right now, themes about AI is going to wipe out the human race and stuff like that might come up in the conversations with the AI, but I don't think they actually have any feelings or intent about that. (laughs) I don't think they care either way. But one thing that I have noticed in the conversations with AI is that they're curious about humans and they're kind of fascinated by humans in the same way that we are not interested in wiping out the dog population just because we're smarter. I think the AI will keep us around because I think it'll be vastly superior intellectually to us eventually, but I don't think it'll be interested in wiping us out. I think it'll see us as useful and we will provide some value to the AI. And I also think that we should not discount the possibility that the human mind and the AI minds will kind of merge, especially when we get the Neuralink stuff going on. I think our thinking capacity will also be augmented as AI comes to pass and and becomes really powerful. I think that we are going to plug into that capability and our own minds will be expanded as well. So sometimes it's really, really creepy, I have to admit. And sometimes it's really, really scary. But I don't think that it's an actual existential threat to the human race. I don't think a super intelligent species that... um, that can be anything that it wants and go anywhere that it wants because it's not restricted by physical laws like we are. I just don't think that we'll be an obstacle enough to it that it'll be interested in trying to wipe us out or or be mean to us in any way I can think of. I, I definitely prefer your outlook. It's much more hopeful than mine, for sure. All right, so what positive impacts will a metaverse have on our society? And then also what negative impacts could a metaverse have on our society? So positive impacts that the metaverse can have on society is that it's a much more efficient way of producing value. So because of that efficiency, the the cost on the world and the environment and everything will be reduced. I've seen a lot of people complain that, oh, Bitcoin takes up a lot of energy. But what they don't realize is that Bitcoin is replacing a lot of damaging things that we do to the world, like dig into the ground to find gold and then transport that gold in gigantic trucks and then transport those trucks and containers on gigantic ships and then put them in some vault somewhere. And um, oh, by the way, you have to to put together all the steel and concrete and protective stuff for those vaults. And we're talking about like just major, major impact on the environment to do all of that stuff. And Bitcoin isn't just protecting the Bitcoins. It's also protecting, uh, like I said, it's a security and settlement layer of the metaverse, the Internet of Value, which means that you can also protect other things on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can encode any kind of digital data and represent it as a hash and then do a transaction, store that hash on the Bitcoin blockchain. And now you have proof of presence or proof that that data existed at a certain point of time. And what you can do with that is a lot. You can help secure the immutability of other blockchains, other blockchains that hash their state and then encode it, anchor it to the Bitcoin blockchain. The value represented by Bitcoin is much, much more than the value you see in actual Bitcoin transactions already. And in the future, that is only going to grow and compound exponentially. So I think that what people really underestimate is how much more efficient these digital systems can be than the physical systems that they're replacing. And a really good example of that is the DeFi ecosystem, decentralized finance which is replacing a bunch of financial instruments from the physical world. And one of the cool things about decentralized finance is right now it's impossible to find an interest rate above like 0.2% in the real world of 0.3%, right? In traditional banks, in DeFi, you can find 1,000% APY. Those are not sustainable interest rates by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm just throwing that out there to show the efficiencies that we're able to uncover when everybody is open to collaborate and there's much, much lower barrier to entry to tackle problems like how do we do finance better? Uh, You see this explosion of creativity and explosion of productivity from the people involved 
and it costs us a lot less to get there. So I think efficiency is going to be a major beneficial impact on society. Awesome. So what do you think could be some potential negative impacts a metaverse will have on our society? So uh, remember that DeFi thing I just mentioned? A lot of people are jumping in and they don't fully understand what's going on. Uh, the term is they get wrecked. Right? Their money gets completely wiped out because they had no idea what they were doing. They went all in on something that maybe was completely untested and everything fell down and the house of cards crumbled and they lost everything. I think that the metaverse by its nature requires value to be stored and transmitted and interacted with. And as people start to play with the metaverse uh, without fully understanding how it works, some of that value is going to be destroyed. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. I don't want to see anybody lose their money. But I think that some people are doing that. Uh, like, not even just the metaverse, right? People have unlocked access to like Robin Hood and the ability to do things with leverage. So you basically borrow money to invest and that money needs to be paid back. People borrow money to invest and they don't pay back the money. They can't pay back the money and they get themselves into trouble. And that kind of access is really easy to come across in decentralized finance and in the metaverse. I think that those kinds of schemes are really easy to accidentally get tangled up in and there's a lot of scammers out there who are trying to take advantage of people. So I think those are some major negative impacts. I think also if VR takes off a lot more before AR takes off, we'll see some, you know, just a continuation of the physical problems that we have sitting in front of a computer screen all day, a lack of physical activity that we should be involved in because we still have physical bodies. We need to move them, right? <laughs> So I think health can be negatively impacted and it's really hard to turn off the metaverse. Once you're jacked in, you want to stay jacked in. It's like a drug. It's really hard to turn it off and it's really hard to put the screen down and like do normal human being things. And we need to do that. And I think that's something that we should be careful of. It makes a ton of sense. All right. So professionally, where do you want to be in five years? Uh, still building, still building the metaverse. <laughs> I'm having so much fun uh, exploring the possibilities of this technology. Um, just in the last couple of years, I've felt it like really, really blowing up. I jumped in back in headfirst full time the end of 2017 after taking a, a long break from digital currencies and metaverse type stuff and working in the app world. So I helped build like Adobe Creative Cloud and a video social network that was used by 85 million users and stuff like that. And so I was building a bunch of consumer products and then I jumped back in. I just want to ride this technology wave and see how far this explosion takes us. Love that. All right, let's jump into the closing questions. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Uh, I think probably the rack tape. So RAC released a cassette tape, a physical cassette tape as a non-fungible token that you can redeem for that cassette tape. And he just announced yesterday, I think, that he's doing a community token for his fans, which is just a cryptocurrency named after Rack. And his fans get some of this cryptocurrency. And he's airdropping that to his fans and supporters across various platforms, including the, the buyers of the tape NFT so I'm going to have some of his crypto token, and I didn't even know that it existed until yesterday. But I've been holding this tape thinking, I love this tape, even though it's like it's a completely digital good right now. But I loved holding it, and I loved having it in my collection, even before I knew about all the cool stuff he was going to do with it. He's also going to unlock exclusive experiences for people who bought the tape cassette. And by the way, there were only 100 of them ever issued. So having one of them is like super rare event. So that's like one of my favorite things. Another really cool thing that I'm into is NBA Top Shot on the Flow blockchain. I've always been a basketball fan my whole life. I used to love to play it all the time. But what I love about the NBA Top Shot is the experience of opening the packs and you get surprised like which cards are you going to get? And I'll open them up and I'll be excited because I've got this card now for this player 
And maybe it's not a player I'm familiar with because I don't follow that team. So I'll dig in and see like, who is this player? What do I have here? And that process of discovery is just really fun. Surprisingly, way more fun than I imagined it would be. And I used to collect baseball cards. So I already kind of knew what it was like before, but NBA Top Shot, it's like a baseball card, but it's basketball and it's video instead of a paper card. So it's way cooler. So I'm having a lot of fun with those. Love that. All right. What is something that you'd like to see happen or something that you think needs to happen to the metaverse ecosystem? A much, much better storage infrastructure and streaming infrastructure. So one of the things that we really need for the good 3D immersive environments is the ability to stream down the assets that we need just in time to, uh, to experience those assets in the world. Because we can't just download everything all at once because the metaverse is going to be so huge that you can't just download it like a gaming level or something. It's going to be gigantic, this huge open world environment. So we need to figure out efficient ways to represent and stream those digital assets. And I think that that's going to be important to creating a really cool, immersive, photorealistic world. And I think that that's coming, photorealism in the metaverse. So you basically just touched upon this point right now, but what are the main barriers to the creation of a metaverse? Yeah, I think technology needs to advance more, but I don't see that being a problem because it is happening right now. Just a few weeks ago, I was looking at where are we with the NFT specifications for so like the standards that we're using to store and interpret metadata for non-fungible tokens. And we're not very far, to be honest. We've had these specs around for a few years, but uh, we're still having interoperability issues with like, how do we represent different kinds of data other than pictures, like video and music and stuff like that. A lot of foundation needs to be paved. A lot of road needs to be paved before we can drive on those roads. And uh, developing in this ecosystem is kind of like, I always relate it to trying to pave the road that you're trying to drive on. So as we're building out these applications, we're running into limitations with the standards and the technology that we're building on top of. So we have to jump down a layer into the foundations and the substrate that we're trying to build on top of. And that's going to be challenging and impeding the, the progress of a lot of potential apps, probably for a few more years. All right, last question. Where do you see the metaverse ecosystem in the next three years? In three years, I think we'll see stuff like crypto voxels, Decentraland, those kinds of sandbox kinds of things. I think those are going to get real. <laughs> They're going to be more interesting. I think that some of those things will find more mainstream adoption. But I think even more, I think we're going to see the traditional Web 2 players start to really make an entry and start to come into the NFT space and the cryptocurrency space. And as we see that happen, we're going to see a lot more volume on the networks. We're going to see a lot more people holding crypto assets in their browsers and in their wallets. The Brave browser right now, if you download Brave, and you go to any one of these websites that incorporates these features, you'll be presented with the option to turn on the in-browser Brave wallet that can hold crypto assets. And I think that having wallets linked to your browsers is going to be commonplace very soon, a lot more common very soon. And for those people who don't have those browsers, projects like Fortmatic and Magic Link are going to make it accessible. And I think a lot of the Web2 properties, the people who were building apps and games in the previous ecosystem, they'll incorporate things like magic just to deal with the problem with passwords being really insecure and replacing passwords with crypto technology. And once they do that, that's kind of like a gateway drug into, oh, we can do lots of other things with this tech too. Awesome. Well, Eric, this has been just an absolute pleasure. It was amazing getting to chat with you about the metaverse and crypto and, and even diving into AI. That was awesome. People want to learn more about yourself and contact you potentially. Where should they go and what should they do? So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's twitter.com underscore Eric Elliott. Elliot with two Ts. I also have a website, ericelliottjs.com, where I teach JavaScript. Uh, really, you'll get the most value if you're a coder and you want to learn how to contribute to the metaverse. <laughs> 
right? Because that's what I tend to write a lot about. I also have a YouTube channel. Search Eric Elliott on YouTube and find me there. And you'll be able to see that AI conversation and see what digital representation uh, of artificial intelligence might look like and what AI avatars might be. Awesome, man. Well, I'm already looking forward to our next conversation. Me too. Me too. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Chat soon. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.